Father, we thank you for this time. We just pray that you would really um, um, open our hearts to to hear your word and to meet with you here tonight. Use this time um, as we spend time in prayer and um, uh, just in this last evening of our retreat. Just pray that you would work in our hearts and, and speak to us through your word and minister to us in such a way that only you can. And uh, you would accomplish what you intended. Um, and, uh, again, you know all the burdens and troubles that we, we carry into this room. Just pray that you would meet us here and help us to see you more clearly. Thank you, Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Okay. Um, uh, we're going to look at Genesis 37, Joseph, the story of providence. So, um, hope you've been having a good retreat. Okay, um, we're going to look at Genesis 37. So, what we'll do is we'll read a good chunk of chapter 37, but then I want to kind of um, kind of go through the story of Joseph that kind of spans several chapters, and then just think about this narrative and the story of providence, God's providence in our lives and 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 learn from that. Okay, so um, starting from chapter 37, verse 1. Um, Joseph, no, Jacob, Jacob. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel, another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. And then after that, in verses 5 through 10, it says, talks about how Joseph had these two dreams, and the dreams meant the same thing. Of The dreams were of what it meant was that his brothers, his family, uh, were bowing down to him. That was his dream. And and um, and so he told that to his brothers. And in verse 11, it says his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept this in his mind. And then after that, verse 12 talks about how uh, Jacob sends Joseph to his brothers to check on them while they're pasturing the flock. And then we pick up in verse 18. They, meaning Joseph's brothers, saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animals devoured him, and we'll see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. Jump to verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they tore him, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. 
Then they sat down to eat, and, they, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Verse 28, then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Verse 31, then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments, put sackcloth on his loin, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons, all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Verse 36, meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. That's how the story of Joseph begins. Um, I'll just start with this thought. Suppose you go out to eat at a Chinese restaurant with your friends. And at the end of the meal, they bring out the check with fortune cookies. So you open one. No, you're not supposed to show that yet. Okay. Anyway, all right. So you open one. Not necessarily because you want to eat the fortune cookie, right? Who really wants to eat it? But because you're curious to know what the fortune says. And you know how this goes. Everyone goes around opening their fortune cookie, and you share what your cookie says. And the funny thing is, as people read their cookie fortune, we all kind of like rate the fortune. Right? So, for example, one says, your days will be filled with sunshine and happiness. And then everyone goes, oh, you got a good one. Someone else, your love life will soon be happy and harmonious. And then everyone's like, ooh. And secretly, you're thinking to yourself, wow, I wish I got that one. <laughs> but have you ever gotten a fortune that you did not like? One time this person said to me, she says she got one that just said, like she opened the cookie and it said, step it up. <laughs> she, she goes, it didn't even give me any lucky numbers. That's all it said, step it up. I mean, just can you imagine? There you are, you open your fortune cookie. And of course, like when you open a fortune cookie, you, you expect it to say something positive to you, right? That's usually how it works. Right? But you open, up, open it up and your fortune cookie actually rebukes you. Now, what would you do if that happened to you? Think about that. Like, you go, you open it, it says something you don't like, what do you do? You pick another one. You open another fortune cookie because you're in a Chinese restaurant, right? They have, like, infinite number of them. I don't like what this one says, and so I open another one because maybe the next one will be something a little more positive, something that's a little more favorable to me. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> we got to work on our timing here a little bit. Okay. okay, so anyway, that's the point is this. Like, that's often how it is even in life. 
the way that we approach life. Certain things happen in our lives, some turn of events that we don't like, right? Things like that happen all the time. Like people we love get sick. There are like money problems in our family, relationship problems that we experience, like marriage problems, all of these things. And if we could, if it was up to us, we would just crack open another fortune cookie and get a, a different fortune, a different narrative in our lives so that we can skip this chapter and go on to the next chapter of our lives. Um, the story of Joseph is really helpful, I think, because it's, it's a story with real human pain, real human pain caused by man's twisted depravity. We see real human beings suffering in this story, in the story of Joseph. So that's why it's like so relatable to us. It's so real to us. Because real life is never smooth, right? It's never without problems. Real life is never predictable. There's always something around the corner that happens that often we don't like. Here's um, a prayer request that I received once from someone. And, uh, you know, I, afterwards I asked him if I can share it. And this is basically what he emailed me. He said, family's been the worst. My dad recently shared how long he's been in, working in America with such little money to show for it, little, the little joy that he has in life. It was, definitely not something I, it was definitely not something easy to hear. My older brother is living at home and is currently unemployed. And to be honest, I would not hire him. He's not very bright, not teachable, isn't a very good worker. He and my dad fight a lot at home, and my mom is starting to lose her mind. My brother does want to be helpful, but whenever he helps, he literally makes things worse and then is unwilling to hear what he did wrong or how he could fix it. My younger brother left my family a few months ago. When my parents got in a fight, he choked my dad, and he hasn't returned home since, and he's unwilling to talk to me. That's just an example, but that's life. Life is so messy because of sin. And uh, like we all have our own stories, right? Every single one of us, like we can present our own stories, and it can compete with this one in terms of how messy it is, like how tragic and painful things get in the story of our lives. So that's a question that all of us, we have to wrestle with. How am I supposed to see life when I go through things like this? And that's what we want to think about as we look at the life of Joseph. The account of Joseph is really a story of God's providence. And that's what we want to talk about. First, we'll explain what God's providence is. And then we'll talk about how God's providence is good. And then when we understand that his providence is good, that we should, it should lead to us trusting him. Trusting in God's providence. So first, the providence of God. And uh, if you uh, kind of like sub points under this point, the providence of God for his people. By providence, when we talk about God's providence, we mean that God is involved. So here's the definition. God is involved with all created things and that he directs them to fulfill his purposes. 
that God is involved with all created things and that he directs them to fulfill his purposes. So God's providence is different from God's sovereignty. When we talk about God is God, that God is sovereign, we mean that he's in control, right? He's the almighty God who's in control of all things. He's a sovereign God. God's providence means that in God's sovereignty, because God is sovereign, now God is orchestrating everything to fulfill his purposes. He is at work using everything, all created things, and directing them to fulfill his purposes and his will. That's the providence of God. Chapter 37 is a beginning of a new section in Genesis. Verse 1, it says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And then these are the generations of Jacob. The first thing that the writer tells us is that Jacob was in Canaan. And this is relevant because God previously had made a covenant with Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. And God promised Abraham two things. He promised to give Abraham and his descendants the land of Canaan, land, and also he promised to make him into a great nation, right? Land and seed. That's why where Jacob is, right, whether he's in Canaan or not in Canaan, is relevant uh, to the story, to, the, to redemptive history. And so at this point, the writer tells us Jacob is in Canaan. But now God also said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation, on that nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. And, and that, that land that's not theirs, it's talking, talking about Egypt. So this part of Genesis from chapter 37 tells the story of how Israel ended up in Egypt and how Jacob's family became a nation. And then also how they ended up coming back to Canaan. So it's the story of God's uh, promises unfolding. Redemptive history, God working it out, and his promises unfolding. Just like all the narratives that we see in the Bible, this part of Genesis shows us how God worked to keep his covenant promise to his people. That's why verse says, verse 2 says, these are the generations of Jacob. NIV translates that this is the account of Jacob's family line. Right? So it's not just referring to the man Jacob, but the entire family and the descendants of Jacob, which later turns into the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, so, so the story that we're studying, Joseph is a prominent figure here, but it's not really mainly about him. It's really the story of God's people, how God worked in his providence to fulfill his promises to his people, the providence of God for his people. Second subpoint: the providence of God in sin. Now, this, this story of the chosen people of God, the family that God chose to represent him among the nations, this family was far from perfect. Just like all families, this family was characterized by sin. There's favoritism, jealousy, hatred. I mean, hatred to the point of wanting to murder someone in your family, kind of hatred. Deceit, all kinds of sin. 
But one thing that this story clearly shows us is that man's sin cannot derail the plan of God. That God's providence is at work even through man's sin. If you look at verse 20, the brothers say, Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. We will see what will become of his dreams. So Joseph's dreams, when God gave him those dreams, those dreams were divine revelations. God was revealing through those dreams what he was about to do. The brothers planned to kill Joseph, and they believed that their actions will actually keep the dreams from being fulfilled. They believed that through their plan, they will overrule the plan of God. But God's providence includes the execution of his plans in relation to sin. And we saw this. We talked about this when we're, when we're looking at uh, David's life, that God is never responsible for causing sin, but God actually acts in various ways in relation to sin. And, and we talked about this before, four different ways. Like God sometimes prevents sin, which he did not do here. God sometimes permits sin. Right? The brothers were permitted to sell Joseph out of their hatred. God sometimes limits sin, right? Because they originally wanted to kill Joseph. God limited that. God sometimes directs sin. God was using sin. God sent Joseph and eventually all Israel to Egypt because God was using their sinful acts to fulfill his purposes. And of course, later on, Joseph came to understand this. Later in his life, after being sold into slavery, after being falsely accused and being placed in a dungeon, after being made governor of Egypt and being used by God to save his entire family, Joseph, after all of that, attributes everything that he went through to God's providence. And we know the famous verse in chapter 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. So the brothers sinned, trying to hinder the plan of God. And even through that, Satan was at work, trying to derail the plan of God. But as that was happening, God did not have to alter his plan. Right? God didn't have to go to like other options because of Joseph's brothers or because of Satan. God providentially was at work through all of those things, even in sin, through sin, despite sin, to accomplish his purposes. You know, I've been involved in, I guess, ministering to college students and young adults for like two and a half decades now. That's, that's a lot of conversations with different people. And I don't know how many times, how many conversations I've had over the years with people who are heartbroken Male, female, like people who are heartbroken because someone that they've been dating broke up with them. So many conversations. By the way, so that that doesn't happen to you, we have a Valentine's Day coming up next weekend. And on Friday for FNL, we're going to have a special seminar talking about dating and singleness and, and all of those things. Anyway. In these conversations, like you can imagine, they're hurt, they're angry, they're, they feel lost. 
They feel in despair. So there I am, like sitting across the table with them, and almost always, like in that state, like they have this, like, they, this glazed look in their eyes. They're not sure how, how they're going to move forward from this point on because they, they only saw their lives moving forward together with that person. And now that person is no longer there in their lives. And so they feel completely at, at a loss. And in that situation, like, I'm like, dude, this is better for you. Come on, like, you don't need her. You don't need him. Like, you only need Jesus. Say that with me. I only need Jesus. And when I'm saying that, like, I really, really believe that. This is better. Like, this was not the will of God for you. God is freeing you for something better. But it's hard for them. It's hard for them to believe that. They almost always think, like, this, is, this, this situation that I'm in now, like, this is not how it was supposed to be. And oftentimes, when they say things like that, there's a theological struggle going on in their minds and in their hearts. They feel like in some ways they've sinned before God. And because of sin, they feel like they're going to miss out on what could have been, what should have been. So now... Because of sin, I have to live out the rest of my days alone in misery. Live out the, the alternative plan in my life. And I realized that's how many people think in many situations involving sin. That because of my sins or because of sin's effect on me, I can no longer live out God's original plan for my life. Now I'm destined to God's kind of like second tier plan for me, that I have to settle for God's plan B now because of this wrong turn I've made in my life. And I hear that, and, and I think that's absolutely the wrong way to think about life. Because, because if that's true, then we cannot explain what God did in redemptive history through, through people like, like Jacob, like Moses, David, Peter, each of whom had made notable wrong turns in their lives. But we see throughout the Bible, God constantly working through man's sins to bring about his purposes. And of course, like in that, in that narrative, things like repentance, restoration, reconciliation, all of those things enter into this conversation. But as far as God's intent is concerned, his purposes for our lives does not change because of sin. Now, it's possible, it's possible that the, the path, right, the path of how God works in our lives might be affected by sin. But his purposes for us, his destination for us remains the same because God's providence works in relation to sin. Third point the providence of God in suffering. In verse 17, it says, um, 
And the man said, this is when Joseph is looking for his brothers and he asked someone, where are they? And the man said, they've gone away for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Um, Joseph is sold into slavery at this place, Dothan. Dothan is also mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 6, where God's providence worked in a different way. The book that we read this morning touched on this. We opened with this. In that, in that narrative, Elisha, the prophet Elisha, was surrounded by his enemies, and he prayed for deliverance. And it says in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So with Dothan here, God answered Elisha's prayer and rescued him. But in our narrative at Dothan, God did not rescue Joseph, even though Joseph cried out for help from the pit. So you can imagine what Joseph must have been thinking. Like He must have been really confused. Why are my brothers doing this? Why is God letting my brothers do this to me? So you see, God's providence is a really mysterious thing to us. Sometimes he rescues, sometimes he doesn't. And when we're in the middle of this kind of suffering, we very rarely understand why it's happening. It's a mysterious thing when we suffer in the providence of God. Another person who's going through suffering in this story is Jacob. And we read that in the end of the chapter, verse 33. He identified it. It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without, is without doubt torn to pieces. And look at how anguished he is at the thought of losing his favorite son. Then Jacob tore his garments, put on sackcloth on his loins, mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused, refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. So Jacob is affected by sin. And it's, it's just showing us a glimpse of the depth of his pain, how much he's suffering because of sin. So much so that he cannot be comforted, it says. So the story of God's people, we see that it's filled with the effects of sin and saturated with pain. And that's why it's so relatable to us. Because often in our lives, we go through things like that. See? Okay, so think about that. Joseph is confused. Why is this happening? Why, is the, why are they do, doing this to me? Why is God not delivering me? Jacob is in pain. Experiencing such a, a deep pain that he cannot be comforted, refuses to be comforted, just wants to die because the pain is so real. But then it says in verse 30, 36, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So, meanwhile, while Joseph is wondering why, meanwhile, while Jacob is mourning his tragic loss. Meanwhile, God was at work. 
setting the table for redemption. There are many years of pain, many years of suffering ahead for Joseph and Jacob and even the brothers. But all along, meanwhile, God was at work. That's God's providence. God providentially rules, overrules all things to fulfill his purposes and to fulfill his promises to his people. The providence of God. Secondly, the good providence of God. So we often hear this famous verse in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, you meant evil against me, God meant it for good, bring it about that many people should be kept alive. And so, you know, we know how the story of Joseph ends. We know from hindsight that God's providence had a good purpose. God's good providence actually not only vindicated Joseph, but actually saved Jacob's entire family and preserved God's people and ultimately brought about Jesus Christ for the saving of the entire world. The good providence of God. But what I want to think about here is how good God is to his people on a personal level. Notice through some of these verses in, in our chapter just how cruel the brothers were to Joseph. Notice how dysfunctional the family relationships were. Verse 4, it says, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So it seems like their hatred was so intense, such that like every word toward Joseph was an expression of that hatred. Like they could not speak peacefully to him. That kind of hatred existed in this family. Verse 18, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. I mean, can you imagine the, the, like, loathing someone to the point where the very sight of that person makes you want to actually kill them. It seems like that's what's going on here in their relationship. Verse 24, and they took him, threw him into a pit. Verse 25, then they sat down to eat. I, mean, I thought this was kind of, like, almost comical. Maybe this is a reflection of just how hard their hearts were toward Joseph. So Joseph was betrayed by his own brothers, and the effect, like the effect on him, the effect of their evil against him would stay with him for many years to come. Later on, when Joseph names his sons in Egypt, it says in chapter 41, verse 51, Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. So almost two decades had passed since he was sold into slavery by his brothers. At this point, God had made him the ruler of Egypt. So he thinks about all the recent blessings that he's received from God. And he says, God has helped me to forget my father and my brothers. That's a strange way to recount God's blessings, isn't it? That's because despite all the recent blessings that he's received, there's still that one area, of, area in his life that was still painful. He thinks about his family, and it still hurts. 
So he's thanking, he's thanking God that to some degree, God has enabled him to forget. It's as if Joseph has come to this, this, this conclusion that he's going to ache in this one area of his life for the rest of his life. And that the only remedy that he could ever have for this pain is to forget. But then, if we fast forward Joseph's life a few more chapters, we see God addressing that pain. In chapter 45, verse 14, then, this is when they reunite, he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. So now this is 22 years later. After several years of throbbing pain and many years of lingering pain, God finally heals that pain. Of course, like we don't look at this and think, you know, this doesn't mean that now like all of our troubles in this world is going to have a happy ending. But I think this does speak to the redemptive nature of God's providence. For the story to get to this point in chapter 45, it means that God had to have done several things. God worked in the brothers, right, where there was once hatred, intense hatred and jealousy. God brought about repentance. It also means that God worked in Joseph, where there was confusion, probably bitterness. God brought him now to a place of forgiveness. We also know from the story of Joseph that God plunged, plunged the entire nation of Egypt, and not only Egypt, but the entire Near Eastern world into a seven-year famine to bring about this reconciliation. So, So the brothers' repentance, Joseph's forgiveness, and the family's reconciliation. Repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation. I remember the first time I read the story of Joseph, I read this and I was baffled. Like, how do you get from chapter 37 to chapter 45? Yes, I know, like, God was working to save his people, to fulfill his promise to Abraham and things like that. But there was no explanation in my mind that could take that level of hatred in chapter 37 and then the, the, the genuine love of chapter 45, and then bridge those two things together. But I've come to realize that what brings those two ends of the story together really is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation. That's God's redemption pattern. Jesus gave his life on the cross, offers forgiveness, calls sinners to repentance so that we can be reconciled to God. That's what the entire biblical narrative is about. And that's what we see in this story. God brought about a global crisis that affected millions of people because God was working to keep his promise to his people to ultimately bring sinners to reconciliation to himself. And Now God was working out that same redemption pattern in the lives of his people. In their personal experience of pain, God in his good providence was at work to bring about 
repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation. So that where there was evil, he can bring about good. Where there was sorrow, he can bring about joy. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the the biblical narrative. And we see God constantly at work to do that in his relationship with his people and the relationships that we have among one another. That's what God's doing in our lives, even today, right? In the broken relationships that we have with God. How many of us come to this retreat with some sort of brokenness, broken relationship with God? He's at work to bring us to repentance so that we can receive his forgiveness and be reconciled to God. And not only that, but in our broken relationships with others, it is the intention of God to bring about repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation. And then when that happens, it says in verse 15, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. The proper response after repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation is celebration. That's the proper next thing that should happen after repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Um, I can illustrate that in this way. I can't remember. I can't remember the details of this conversation. It was a few years ago. But our kids were, were once talking about something at the dinner table, and uh, Daniel had said something. He, he said this. He said one of his friend's parents got mad at his friend about something, and he goes, um, they weren't like really, really, really mad, but kind of mad. That's what Daniel said. And then Enoch goes, it's the, it must have been the make you feel bad kind of mad. Now, when Enoch said that, I was kind of surprised. So this was a few years ago. Maybe they were like, you know, preteens. I was surprised because I didn't think that he had a category in his mind for, you know, for that in his understanding of parents. What is the make you feel kind of mad that parents, I didn't think like he had that kind of category in his mind. But then I realized that he has that category because I do that sometimes. So, for example, it kind of works like this. For example, like the kids come in from school and they just drop their jackets on the floor. And then I see that, and, you know, I've told them not to do that before, and so I'm kind of frustrated about it. And maybe in that situation, maybe the godly thing to do in that moment is to pick it up and hang it up myself, or just gently remind them to do that again. Obviously, the ungodly thing to do in that moment is to get super angry about it. You, you know, like, ungrateful, rebellious kids, pick up your jacket. So for me, in that kind of situation, I do neither of those. I opt for something in the middle. Kind of like this. How many times did I tell you to pick up your jacket? You see, if you do that, mom or dad has to pick it up. Isn't it enough that your mom gave birth to you? Isn't it enough that your dad 
helped your mom give birth to you. I mean, after all of that, you expect us to pick up your jacket too? See, something like that? That's the make you feel bad kind of math. Now, think about that. What's going on there? I'm frustrated, and I want to express it, right? But I can't lash out because that's, that's terrible, right? So it gets expressed through words that aren't super bad, but it's still kind of like you express something to alleviate that frustration. You say something that makes you kind of seem like relatively godly, but then it also makes it clear to the other person that, oh, man, you've, like, I've been let down. The point is this. In this narrative, there's nothing like that here. Joseph gives no, he gives no subtle side comments to his brothers for what they've done to him in the past. Right? He could have. He could have made them work for forgiveness and all that kind of stuff like we talked about. But here, there's only tears of joy and celebration. Because again, that's how God embraces sinners in Jesus Christ. And that's a great principle for us to keep in mind, even in our relationships. After repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation, then it's over. Don't look back. Just celebrate the goodness of God because that's the gospel process. Repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation. God celebrates with us for having been reconciled to himself. Romans 8.28 assures us that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Assures us that God's providence is always good. God orchestrates all events, all the events in this world, ruling, overruling, even the evil acts of men for the good of his people. And of course, what God considers good often does involve pain and suffering for God's people. And that's why God's providence seems mysterious at times. God's providence may even seem absent at times, but God's purposes in what he orchestrates is always wise, always loving, and always good. God's providence, he's at work in everything. God's providence is good. So then flows from that thought, if, this, if he's in control of all things and is working for the good of his, then we should trust. We should trust in the providence of God. Verse 6, Joseph says, hear this dream that I, that I dreamed. So Joseph had two dreams of his brother's family bowing down to him because God was revealing his plan to Joseph through those dreams. So as Joseph went through the different stages of his life, right, he went from favored son to slavery, from slavery to prison. Went, kept going lower and lower, deeper into darkness. He was to hold on to those dreams that God gave him and trust in the providence of God. Even as he went through incredible, unjust sufferings in his life, he had to believe that what he was going through in those moments was not by chance, but that God was actually 
carrying out his will. And it seems like that's what Joseph did. It seems like that's what Joseph believed. It seems like Joseph held on to those dreams and trusted in God because in chapter 41, when Pharaoh now has his two dreams, and Joseph is called to interpret those dreams, Joseph said to Pharaoh, chapter 41, verse 25, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. In this statement, he says, God not only knows what's going to happen, but God has ordained what's going to happen, what he is about to do. Joseph believes not only that God knows the future, but that he controls the future. He then tells Pharaoh to get ready for the famine that's coming. Chapter 41, verse 32, the thing is fixed by God. God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Joseph believes that God is revealing the future to Pharaoh so that he can get ready. Joseph is basically saying to Pharaoh, hey, Pharaoh, God is being good to you. He's giving you these dreams so that you can get ready for it. That's what Joseph really believes. Now think about that. Joseph, at this point in his life, like he just straight out came out of the dungeon. After all the things that he's been through, and right now he's sitting in the dungeon right before he comes to talk to Pharaoh. And in that moment, he has an opportunity to say something to Pharaoh about the providence of God. And even after everything that he's personally been through, he basically says, God is good, so you can trust him. Joseph experienced every bad turn of God's providence, but he still says you can trust him while he himself waits for his dreams to be fulfilled. Let me show you this picture. This is a beautiful picture of you don't know. You don't know because you can't tell. I mean, how could you, right? It's dark. It's fuzzy. It's incomplete. But then when you zoom out, <laughs> you see that blue square right there on the, on the right? Now go back to that. small. That is that right there, that small square on the right. When you zoom out, you actually can tell that it's this beautiful picture of the best fifth grade band in the world. <laughs> now, the point is this. This is exactly the place where we often live in our lives. We live in between the promise and the fulfillment of that promise. We live in circumstances that are often dark, fuzzy, where the story is incomplete, where God just calls us to trust him, even when we have no idea what he's doing. But we can go through even the most severe difficulties in our lives in faith, trusting that God is painting a beautiful picture into the story of our lives. 
Um, I'll finish with this story. I had to reach back way, 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 way back to access this story. And uh, this is the story of when our first child was born. Um, when I saw for the first time the, the intensity of labor pains. Um, it was intense. Praise God. God flipped the coin, and he chose women to carry the child. I saw for the first time how painful labor pains and the birth process is. Especially, especially when it was time to deliver the baby. And this is how it works. Right? When it's time to deliver the baby, like, you know, they, they've been suffering and in pain for a long period, like depending on, you know, hours, hours on pain. And then like when it's time to deliver the baby, intense contractions come. And when the contractions come, now this is like you're like in the, you know, like ready to give birth. When the int intense contractions come, that's where, you know, the woman is like, ah, ah. And then the intense contraction, ah. When the intense contractions come, that's when she has to push. So she pushes, you know, really hard. And then, like, and then the, the, for a few seconds, the, the intense contractions go away. And then, again, after a few seconds, the contractions come again. Ah, and then so she has to push again. And repeatedly, she does it many times, depending on, you know, how many times. And then that's the process of delivering a baby. Now, every time she was trying to push the baby out, because of the pain... She would grab, like they gave her a special, you know, hospital bed with, with rails on it. Because like anything goes in this moment. So, I mean, I guess like whatever, like, so gave her hospital with rails on it so that when the pain comes, she can like hold on to the rail. So that's what she would do. Like, hey, come, she would get ready to push. She would either hold on or like I was next to her or, you know, I would offer my hand and she would hold on really tight to my hand ah, and then you know, push as I was trying to support her. That's why I said I helped her. Now, about, about the fourth time when that, the contraction, about the fourth time when she was getting ready to push again, okay, it was coming, coming, and so again, like she reached out her hand, she, she was trying to like, just, you know, like in the pain, just trying to grab something. She's trying to reach for my hand. But then the, this time she missed my hand. I, it was there, but she missed my hand. And then instead of grabbing my hand, like she grabbed me, like she had to grab something. So she grabbed me right here. Uh, you missed my hand. Uh, right here, like, I don't know, like above the appendix. And I tell you right now, uh, God never intended for a man to be held and grabbed right here. <laughs> because when she grabbed and squeezed really hard, it hurts so bad. I mean, it hurts so much, but like, you know, she's screaming in pain. I wanted to also scream in pain. But obviously I didn't because it's like, 
that would look totally ridiculous to the doctors and nurses. <laughs> ah, ah, you know, that's just, but it hurts, it hurt real bad. <laughs> so, so like when she did that, I was like, you're doing great, just breathe. But I was really saying that to myself, you know, like, just breathe. So there were two pains in that delivery room that day, labor pain and unnecessary pain. Her labor pain, her birth pain was necessary to give birth to a child. My pain was because I was standing at the wrong place at the wrong time. And the point is this, too often, too often we feel like that. We go through the sufferings and the pains in our lives and we're saying all along in that entire process, forget all the things that we know, what the Bible says, and theologically what the Bible, this is so stupid. Why is this happening? This is so unnecessary. Why am I going through this? But the story of Joseph tells us there are actually no unnecessary pains in our lives. Because Jesus went through the birth pains, Birth pains to give us life. Because he did that, and not because there's a covenant relationship in Jesus Christ that cannot be broken, God has promised to work out his rede redemption process in our lives. What that means is that no matter what you go through in your life, not a single drop of tear is going to be wasted in your life. God uses every drop, every tear of pain for the good of his people to accomplish his purposes for the glory of his name. His providence is good, and God is calling us to trust in the good providence of God. Let's pray together.